Stitch Fix is a company that recommends packages of clothing based on a set of preferences that the user defines and updates over time. The software platform of Stitch Fix includes the website, the data engineering infrastructure, there's lots of machine learning, and warehouse software. There's also plenty of other applications internally and externally. Stitch Fix has over 5,000 employees, including a large team of engineers. Kathy Polinsky is the CTO of Stitch Fix. In today's show, Kathy describes how the infrastructure has changed as Stitch Fix has grown, including the process of moving the platform from Heroku to AWS, and the experience of scaling and refactoring a large monolithic database. Kathy also talked about the management structure, the hiring process, and the engineering compensation at Stitch Fix. It's a wide-ranging, high-level perspective on engineering at a large, growing company that recently went public. Kathy Polinsky, you are the CTO at Stitch Fix. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you. Glad to be here. Stitch Fix is a company that gives styling and personal clothing shipments to customers for them to try. Explain how Stitch Fix works at a high level. Yeah, sure. So Stitch Fix is an online personal styling company. And the way that it works is that a client comes into our website and they fill out a detailed style profile. We ask questions about your style preference, your fit, your size, and even your cost preferences. And then we assign you to a personal stylist. What we do with that data, though, is we run it through dozens of machine learning algorithms to get very accurate recommendations that we give those stylists. They hand curate a fix just for you, send it to your house, you try it on at home, you pay for what you keep, you send back the rest, we pay for shipping both ways. The first stage of that process is this customer sign up and then a surveying process. I want to go through some of the data gathering and then we can... yeah. It's a big data company, right? Exactly. And then we can gradually dive into the algorithms and machine learning and infrastructure and so on. But give a perspective for the beginning of that customer life cycle when you start gathering information in the survey. Yeah. So as people fill out a survey, it's similar to a dating survey, actually, when we're getting information about different dimensions that really people care about when they're going shopping themselves. So if you're like me, you probably do almost all of your shopping online, except for apparel. Apparel is one of the industries where it's really hard to buy clothes online. Um, And the reason is because there's so many different things that you think about when you walk uh, into a store, and probably they're slightly different than your brother or your best friend or your coworker. So we really have a wide range of things that we're asking people. First, it's around fit. So what size are you for shirts, for pants? Do things usually run long? Do they usually run wide? We ask about style. What colors do you like? What materials do you like? What preferences you may have? We ask about other stores you may shop at or things that you care about for quality and what your budget is. And we use all of that information to get a really holistic view of what each person is and how they think about shopping. And then eventually that results in a set of clothing that is sent to them. 
That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's really about this, how do uh, personalization, how do we get a curated box just for you with things that you'll like? Fan of paradox of choice, um, the sense that more choices are not necessarily better. You want the right choices for you. And that's what we provide. So what's the right way to frame this? Is it like as a, can we think of it like a stable matching problem where the customer has given some set of preferences and then you're doing a matching algorithm between the properties of those preferences and the properties of a set of clothing? That's a really good question. So it's not quite in the same as a stable matching marriage problem, so to speak, in that there are multiple pieces of inventory that can go to many people. So it's not a closed system in that way. But uh, there is this dual side of the recommendations. There's information that we have about every single item of clothing, plus information that we have about every client. And so we are trying to get the best match between each and every for each and every client. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about the data modeling. So you get the customer in the door, they give some set of preferences, and you also have a large database of pieces of clothing that are schematized with their own pieces of data. Can you give me a a framing for the data platform, where the data is stored, what kinds of databases you're using to store that data, and how you're getting the properties of those pieces of clothing and of those users? Yeah. So we have two sides of our technology platform. One is through our applications. So our applications for our engineering systems, our uh, merchandising systems, and our styling systems. Those are relational databases and store transactional data that we get and receive from clients and statistics from (laughs) inventory that's coming in and out of our system. We also have a big data platform that is run by our algorithms team. And so we stream events to them. They have a lot of different sides of of that data architecture. But what they're doing is continually taking events and the data to create match scores for each client and each item uh, pairing that we have. Those get fueled back into our styling applications. So our stylists can see up-to-date information about what's right for each client as the inventory is changing on a moment-by-moment basis. And it really gives us this ability to, to have, at the moment, data for each client. We've had a couple shows recently where we talked about this process of moving data from the transactional stores to the long-term storage or the data platform storage. So we did a show with Uber, for example, where they have their transactional data store where it's using, I think they're using Mongo and I think maybe MemSQL for the online transaction processing. So when a user is accepting a ride, for example, or they're involved in a ride, you want the responses to be quick and, you know, the data model needs to reflect that. The, you know, the the system of uh, data availability needs to reflect that. And then they have these periodic jobs where the data is pulled from the transactional stores and then put into storage systems that are easier to access for large columnar queries, for example. So what's the process of getting the data from the transactional storage systems into the analytic storage systems? Do you have like ETL jobs that get that pull from the transactional store into the analytic store? 
it depends on the type of data that we're pulling, but we have a number of, of, of different connection points. Some of it is just database snapshots and you know, just a simple ETL process that's going through into the other systems. Uh, some of these systems are throwing events that we have listeners on the data science teams that are running through their Kafka bus. So it is a collection of systems that are all working in unison together. We don't have some of the same real-time problems that Uber does. We do have a little bit more predictability into our systems and a little bit more time for really having a great experience for styling. So it's not this on the moment, we're sending out a fix every minute after you order. But but it is important for us to really think about how we can tighten that, those times and, and process all that information reliably. Okay. So when the user has given their set of preferences and you've got this large database of clothing, you need to be able to match some set of clothing to the user. Uh, How time sensitive is that process? Do you need it to run quickly or can you give it some time or does it it even matter? Is is it a process where you can take advantage of having more time and, and kind of do more of this yeah, I mean, historically, it was a, a nightly batch job that was running. And that was fine for a while. Now we've realized that we want to tighten that time for delivery. And so we've been uh, decreasing that the frequency that we do those runs multiple times per day. But we can also see this happening in the moment as well. So we're continuing to evolve as as we want to get faster and faster delivery out. Right. So it, it's kind of interesting because it doesn't matter. I, I guess in the original model, you could just have the user sign up, they take their survey and you say, okay, in the morning, we're going to send you an email with what your order is going to be. And then so you take take out some of the time sensitivity. What's amazing is we never send an email out to the client of what we're going to send them. So there's there's no peaking of, of the system. And this, I think, is just a really interesting story where Eric Coulson, who leads our data science team, was at Netflix when he was first uh, talking with Katrina, our, our CEO and founder. And at Netflix, they were really thinking about how if what a personalization company Netflix is. But if they really trusted their personalization algorithms, they wouldn't give you lists and lists of movies to watch. They would just show you the top three. Or if they were even better, they would just show one. And at that point, if it was just one, they might as well just put a play button there and and deliver the exact movie that you wanted uh, when you were opening up the, the app. So he came to meet Katrina and was shocked to hear that she was doing just that. She was sending a fix, a box of items to clients without showing them what was in the box. And we trust our recommendations and our personalization so much that we have our own skin in the game. We're paying for shipping both ways for the clients. So we have to get it right every single time. And the fact that we can do that with confidence without even having the the client see those items before they ship, I think is pretty remarkable. Definitely. And we can talk a little bit more about the feedback loop there and how you can improve that process over time. I'd like to get a little more more color on is the inventory and the data model for the inventory. So you've got jeans, shirts, dresses, socks. How do you develop the schema for that data and what are the different fields? Are they all like human readable fields or are some of them latent fields that are developed through just feedback loops. Tell me a bit about the data model for the inventory. Yeah, the data model really maps to what the merchandising team thinks about when they're 
ordering merchandise. So we think about a merchandising hierarchy of characteristics about clothing and and how it fits into different categories. So a lot of it is, you know, key value types of information about size, about color, about print. But then we augment that with additional information that we get on the ground with when we receive the clothes. So we have a point of measure application that is run in our warehouses. So when we receive clothing, we measure each item of clothing on these different dimensions. How wide are the shoulders? How wide is it the chest? What about at the waist? How long is the shirt? And what's amazing is we found that a men's button-down shirt actually has more points of measure that matter to fit than a woman's shirt, which I find pretty surprising. Uh, I think women are are pretty uh, concerned about fit, and they also have lots of different body shapes. But when it comes to a men's shirt, even how far the first button is down from the collar really matters uh, to a guy. And so what we've been able to do is, is collect a lot of different data and then figure out the data that really matters when we're trying to match with each client. Mm. Right, so a men's medium that doesn't really even tell you anything. I mean, I've got I've gotten medium from so many different platforms and companies, and medium doesn't mean anything. But I can imagine if you have a lot of information about my actual human body dimensions, if I give you those human body dimensions, and you have done the work of actually manually taking your own measurements you can have a a, a much more accurate representation of what kind of shirt will actually fit this body type in a photogenic fashion. Exactly, exactly. And so I think that's really amazing as we have this continuous feedback loop for us to get better and better over time and not just to get the sizes that fit you, but what for what brand is that size really relevant? And then what does that mean from a latent sizing for either a brand that we're covering or from a person uh, that we're seeing? And so we can use that all through into our, our recommendations for that person. And so some of these features are much more important than others. So the sizing, for example, you probably want that to supersede things like, does it have stripes or not? And does this person like stripes? Do you have any idea of of how that data model prioritizes the different features of a piece of clothing? Here's the deal. It, It all matters. So one of the things that we really think about when we're asking questions about a client is, is this information that we can use? And can we share this information to the stylist? Because the biggest way that we can disappoint a client is if we tell them, if they say, I don't like red, and then we send them a red shirt, they are going to have this really bad mismatch expectations and disappointed fix through that experience. So we never want to ask a question and then not either use that data in the algorithm or send that to our stylist for them to be thinking about their recommendations. And so, yes, fit is extremely important. And that's, you know, every single item has to fit. But if they say they don't want plaid and um, they feel strongly about that, we also want to listen to that. Unless there's some new type of plaid that you think that they may never have heard of and (laughs) maybe more (laughs) likely to try. But we also really are careful about making sure we tell the client when we're doing that and send them a note and saying like, hey, I know you mentioned that you didn't like this, but even though I hear you, I think I'd like you to give this a try and to stretch someone out of their, their comfort zone. And so the algorithms help us do that. They, they help us surface things that someone might like, but we also have to be pretty intentional about how we, we talk to a client about it. You're the CTO, which means that you have a hand in all of the different technical teams. 
Can you give me a picture for the org structure of the engineering organization? Yeah. So what's really amazing is that when I started, the vast majority of the team was working on internal technology. So we build all of the technology to run the business, whether it's tools for the merchandising organization to buy the right product and the right size, right quantity, tools for the styling agents to be able to, the stylists to be able to style each and every fix. We have five warehouses around the country and we run all of our own software for those warehouses and also have tools for finance and customer support. So I'd say about 80% of the team was working on technology across each of those departments. Very product-centric engineers, people who really cared about making business impact. And if you look historically at the company, we had gone through this period of time where we decided to focus on profitability, really to not worry about going through funding uh, rounds again and uh, owning our own destiny. And so as we were scaling the company, this was important for us to invest in that technology. I'd say, though, when I arrived, um, I also noticed that we had tackled a lot of the big scale issues that we needed to, to hit profitability. We were profitable, and we hadn't really built a muscle around conversion or uh, client engagement. The, the actual website and, and mobile app hadn't had that much investment in it. And so over the last year and a half, we've really been scaling out that side of the business. And so it went from less than 20% of the organization to almost 50% of the organization now. And we're seeing a ton of momentum there where we're focusing on first on applic features for acquiring new customers. So when we're asking new profile questions, we want to make sure that it's not confusing and it's not going to decrease the number of client signups. And we're doing constant experimentation on that. And then we're also building a lot of engaging features for long-term um, engagement and retention of our clients. And then thirdly, we've been launching a lot of new businesses. So we started out as a women's business. About a year and a half ago, we launched our men's business. Then we launched Plus. After that, we launched Extras, which is the ability to put in basics into your fix. So bras, underwear, socks, uh, shapewear that you can put into your fix. And then this month, we launched Kids. So it's been a, a constant flurry of amazing product launches the team's been able to work on now. And with those subsequent product launches, I imagine there is some ability to leverage pre-existing infrastructure. So there's probably some ability to reuse all of it. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Platform engineering, some front end reuse, some reuse of machine learning systems. But of course, these things were originally built, I imagine, with kind of, uh, you know, we're building this for in an MVP kind of fashion. And, you know, it wasn't originally built to be replicated into other verticals. So what was the process of, of repurposing that infrastructure or rewriting it or, or was it actually built to be modular in the first place? I think that we have really taken this refactoring mode of figuring out what we can reuse and how we can continually to extend and componentize each, each areas as we've been scaling and growing to new business lines. Uh, so one is the style profile was a pretty rigid profile when we first created it. So there was a lot of work to modularize the style profile, make it easy to add and remove different questions, but also have different profiles for each vertical, whether it's kids or men's or women's, so that we can 
have different experience for each of those business lines. So the, the components are the same. We still need to get those same questions into the algorithms, the same data platforms exist. That also needs to surface up in our, our application for our stylists so they can see information about each of their clients. But there's a lot of customization so that we can have a really great profile for men that doesn't look like the women's profile and ask questions specifically that are going to make sense for men. Mm. Do you have a platform engineering team or these independent business lines fending for themselves and setting up this infrastructure and getting monitoring and alerting and everything and figuring out the best practices? So when we started, we were on the Heroku platform, and that actually got us by for a very long time without really needing a platform engineering team. I love Heroku. Yes, yes. It was um, really amazing to get us up to scale. But after we hit a certain point, we are now going our own way directly on a cloud platform right now on AWS. And we created a platform team before that transition. And so that platform team has really enabled all the other teams to get economies of scale around some of those engineering things that you talked about, especially around our deployments and uh, monitoring. Definitely. Tell me more about that. So, I mean, the first thing we did is that was the team that really focused on the migration from Heroku to AWS. And we really thought about what are the key platform features that we got for free from Heroku? Uh, what are the needs that each of the engineering teams are going to, to want to have? And it was, you know, we, we have one of the most product-centric engineering groups that I've ever worked for in my career. These are people who really want to solve problems. And so we have the product, the, the platform leader there who just reached out to all the different engineering teams and asked, okay, what are your biggest needs? What are your biggest pain points? And so every quarter they've been going through that list and really making sure that you know, not that we have parity, but that we're f- focusing on the things that are most important for our teams. And so that's been great to see the evolution of that team as we've been scaling it up. It's still small, but I think it's kind of a, a superpower type of team there. You invest in that and it increases the productivity of everybody else. Now, when I use Heroku, Heroku using Heroku versus using AWS, for example, this is a t- kind of a bad analogy, but it's kind of like, I think of it as sort of like iPhone versus Android, where you have best practices that are rigidly set up in certain ways, which can really help you. But over time, it's a little bit too rigid. And if you have, you know, 25 teams, these teams may have uh, very granularly different continuous delivery processes. So you don't want everybody on the same Heroku continuous delivery model, maybe you want a much more granularly defined continuous delivery platform that you can present to each team and they can configure however they want. And the same would be true for monitoring and deployment and queuing and all these different things. Is is that an accurate representation of the kind of what you had to, to, the things you had to reconfigure when you were going from Heroku to AWS? Yeah, similar. I mean, the interesting thing about the origin story of of the Stitch Fix architecture is that it started as a Ruby on Rails shop and never had a monolithic code base. So if you, you think about all of the components that I talked to you about, tools for merchandise, for merchants, tools for stylists, tools for the warehouse, tools for apps for our website... Each of those was standalone applications that had its own um, deployments and 
is was very independent. So when you think about a team is a very modern TDD, continuous integration, continuous delivery team. So what happened was we could focus the migration from Heroku to AWS in a piecemeal way. So we could go app by app, uh, team by team to, to do that migration. And so teams could configure things in different ways as needed based on, the, on, their, on their needs. We've got the platform team to help with things that are consistent across the board. But because of the the creation of of this team. I've, it's the only team that I have, or, you know, company that I haven't had to deal with breaking up a monolithic code base, which is a really nice evolution. So, did that platform engineering team? Did they just go from team to team around the company and kind of act like consultants and they help did. them? Yes, exactly, exactly, and. It did require a lot of work across different teams, but for the most part, it was a pretty smooth migration. The teams were really thoughtful in how we migrated, and it all said and done, it didn't. I think, I think it took a couple of, of quarters, but no team was impacted for that long because each of these could be done independently. Hmm. That's cool. And what about machine learning? So if we talk about these different verticals that the company has now set up for kids and plus and so on, these different business verticals of Stitch Fix. How do you get machine learning in each of those organizations? Do you have a machine learning platform team or do you have individual machine learning sub teams within each of those verticals? Yes. So the data science team reports into Eric Colson. So we have a chief data uh, algorithms officer in his organization. He's got a data platform team that is really thinking about tools that are used by all data scientists. So our teams and our platform teams work closely with their platform team to make sure that we have good uh, data integration points and, and clean handoffs for different technologies. The organization structure is, is pretty similar. So we've got an engineering team around tools for our merchandising. We've got a data science team around algorithms for our merchants. And there, we've got over 80 data scientists at the company. There's not a single piece of the company that is not impacted by data science. We use data science for everything. So it really helps extend and make very intelligent decisions around different parts of our business by having this partnership model of, of how we work together. Earlier in the show, you talked a little bit about eventing and I guess the process of uh, queuing up different events that happen on the customer side or internally on Kafka. Can you tell me more about the eventing architecture and what role Kafka plays in your infrastructure? So that is led by the data platform team. So within the engineering team, we do not have the eventing uh, platform. It's it's mainly used, the, the Kafka infrastructure is used within the data platform team for the algorithms. So we have eventing systems on the engineering side to communicate between different applications. But when it comes to the data science applications, they are able to keep, create the infrastructure that works for them. Okay. So it's more about inter-process communication. So like Kafka is more like an event bus for communicating between different services. So, you know, I'm curious about some higher level concerns. So management style concerns. As the organization has scaled, how have communication processes between different teams changed? What has like broken? What are the technologies you've introduced that have been useful? 
things like Slack, Asana, other tools? So the team is a distributed team. We have a remote-friendly culture. So about 50% of the engineers are local here in San Francisco at our headquarters. And then about 50% is remote distributed all around the United States. So the nice thing is we don't have to deal with a lot of different time zones. Uh, so we do have, are just focusing on these three. But there are a lot of things that we need to focus on to make sure that we have great collaboration and communication across teams. We use Slack and we have from the early days of the company. Um, I think that's been great for, for collaboration and even asynchronous communication as people can go back and, and read up on different channels about what's been going on. We use GitHub. I think that that is also great for remote teams for how we can have asynchronous development and, and really have visibility into what's going on. And then the other thing that we do is we have a summit every quarter. So uh, twice a year, we have a whole org-wide summit where we fly everyone out to California. It's four days where we focus on getting everyone together in the same room, aligning on our key objectives, focusing on building relationships and doing continuous learning. And then twice a year, teams uh, have their own summits, and they can do this anywhere they want. Sometimes people will fly out to a warehouse or work with a customer support team or fly out to do a ski trip somewhere. But it's focusing on really getting the teams together for intense collaboration and, and partnership so that they can build the relationships to make it possible to work together when they are remote. As CTO, how much of your work is about having one-on-ones and setting OKRs and KPIs and these more human-level cultural and managerial processes that you're putting in place? And how much of it is is getting in the room with like an engineering team and helping them work out how to refactor the deployment platform, for example? I'd say it's a mix. I'd say this past year has really been about scaling the team. So we, you know, I'd say when I came on board, I was not getting paged every night. I was not, the the architecture was actually a sound building block for us. All of the key indicators of how the teams was doing testing, how teams were doing on-call rotations, how we had our, you know, just metrics about availability, about performance, all were trending in the right direction. So those are things that I would focus on if I felt like they were the most burning needs. I'd say the biggest burning need that I saw was the team uh, had not kept up pace of growth with the rest of the company. And so we were really understaffed compared to other departments within the company. So we more than doubled last year. And a lot of my focus last year was on how we scale and hire the uh, team, how we put in good hiring practices, how we create a new career ladder for the individual contributors in addition to managers, how we put in manager training. And so these people things, I think, are really important to make sure that you've got the right setup to, for, for growth. But I feel like as my role, you just wear the different hats and you look at what your team and org needs. And so now that we, I feel like we have gotten into a good state on uh, the team health side, you know, I'm looking at what the next big challenges are. And a lot of it right now is we have a micro applications infrastructure, but we're not quite microservices. We still have a monolithic database and that has had contention points at certain points of our, our time. And we're looking at ways to start breaking that up. And so that has been a new shift that we're focusing on now. 
There was a lot there. I want to revisit <laughs> some of the some of the stuff on on management, scaling, mm-hmm. hiring, absolutely, um, and career ladder. Those are all interesting subjects. But since you mentioned that database, the monolithic database issue, so is that a monolithic database in the sense that you've got all of the clothes in in one place, or what what exactly is in that monolithic database, and when what where is it running? So I mentioned that we have micro applications. So we've got 80 plus applications that are running for merchandising, tooling, for stylists. Uh, We've got dozens of apps that we run in our warehouse. Plus we've got our main core website and our iOS application. So if you think about each of the, you know, the, the schemas that each of those applications need, they were all on a monolithic database. So we had one relational database that served all the needs for all of our applications, which makes sense in the early days. There's no sense to have lots of different DBs. There's actually a lot of efficiencies that you can get for how you can join tables and look at data across these different applications when you're running in a single DB. The problem, though, is when you've got hundreds of engineers and different apps running against the same table, you get a contention. So from a simple standpoint, you know, just from a number of connections, it it can become a, a bottleneck. But from agility and speed of development, where it gets into a problem is, is the ability to, to, keep your teams agile. So a microservices application instead of a micro applications standpoint allows an abstraction layer between the database that all of the applications can use. And it also allows us to start to untangle from the monolithic database into separate smaller databases for these services. Can you give an example of contention that can occur? I mean, the one is we were running out of connections. So we definitely had to, to do some work. You know, you can have different replicas to, to hit that contention. You can add different caching layers. So we did some improvements there that really hit, that addressed the, the common um, issues of contention that we were seeing. But I think that now, even getting past the con- points of contention, it's, it's really from a developer productivity standpoint, a, a reason that we're shifting to the microservices. So when you were starting to run out of connections, what were the layers of caching that you put in place? So this is, this is just a big yeah. like My, MySQL database or Postgres? Yes, MySQL. MySQL. And then so what kind of caching infrastructure did you put in front of it? We just looked at where the highest number of connection, connections were coming from, from the different applications. And you know, we added some throttling and, and we added some limits but then uh, we looked application by application and added some caching layers, for instance, our styling applications, so that it was not having, when it was fetching data about our clients, we could cache that data rather than um, having as many hits to the DB. Uh, okay, so do you cache the response to a query? I don't know anything about database caching, so I don't mm. Yeah, exactly. So it just depends on what the each of the applications needs, but you can have a caching layer therefore reducing the number of times that it's doing a DB call rather than doing a hit to your cache. Mm. Not to get too into the weeds, but do you remember what were the the super frequent queries that were that had to get caches of like, you know, returns all the women's genes or something? <laughs> no, there wasn't any real like, aha, uh-huh, gotcha, that really took all of the work. It was just, you know, teams were constantly running reports on what are the longest running queries? What are the most common uh, queries that are running? Okay, how can we block and tackle on this? So we had a couple of engineers who were just 
kind of in addition to the on-call rotation, who were kind of on this uh, database SWAT team of sorts that were picking away against this problem. And you know, I think that we were able to make significant problems there as a Band-Aid. But really, when you think about it, how do you think and take a step back from that to, to architect in a different way? And you've mentioned this micro-applications framework. When you say micro-applications, are you talking They're about... Apps. They're just Ruby apps. <laughs> right. Okay. So, and would that be like women's and kids and the plus and these different business no, verticals? No. I mean, one app we have is for our people in our warehouse to pick clothes. So they've got a mobile device that they go around and say, okay, I'm going to around the warehouse and picking these clothes for these fixes. And so that's one app. There's another app that prints out the style cards that gets put in each shipment. There's another app that's running our returns process. And so these are all applications that are important for different parts of our business, but they can be deployed separately, run separately on different instances. And so we've got a lot of ability for isolation and, and speed of de- development. And then you're saying, th- and the same is true for the databases that those different services access. So like the style card, you should be able to break out the requisite data pieces from that huge monolithic database and just, you know, set up a database that's devoted specifically to the style cards. Yeah, I think that we're looking at abstracting things so that we won't quite have that, uh, you know, one-to-one model for every application would have its own DB. But the style profile survey, we're having a survey service, and that's data that's used in a lot of different ways, but it is there's a primary owner, which is the team that's creating the profile. The many teams like the styling team needs to use that data when the stylists come in. So we can abstract that data into its own DB, but it's a it's a higher level service that can be used by by many applications. In this all this refactoring and software development that's, that's taken place since you've been CTO, has there ever been an issue of infrastructure sprawl or overspend where you've had to reel in cost structures? It has that hasn't been the primary motivation for us. I think that we've been able to be pretty lean for what we're doing. It's really about making the right technology decisions that allows us to move fast and and serve our clients. Has there been any desire to move to, have you done containerized refactoring or Kubernetes migration, or has that not been a concern for you? That hasn't been a concern for us yet. Interesting. Why is that? Because I mean, that's just, it's so many companies I talk to, it's, that's top of mind for them. You know, there's more containerization done on our data platform team and the algorithm side. But I think when we're focusing, and we've done some work on this on the platform side, it just hasn't been the primary motivation or focus right now on our teams. Does it have anything to do with the fact that you have perhaps like a lower amount of transactions, but those transactions are much higher significance as opposed to, you know, some company like Uber, where they've got all they've got tons and tons of of smaller transactions and smaller interactions. So maybe the the infrastructure just doesn't require as much high utilization. Like the containerization thing really right. gets you higher utilization Absolutely. out of your platform. Yeah, I think that's that's probably spot on. Interesting. Revisiting the management stuff. So you come in and you realize we need to ramp up hiring, but of course, you know the classic phrase that I keep hearing at least right now, is hire slow and fire fast. So you want to, you know, you need to hire slow because if you hire too fast, then, you know, your, your culture is going to fall apart. You're going to hire substandard people. How do you scale hiring? So first off, we made it everyone's job. So we 
really talked about how it was important for us to to focus on on scaling the team and the problems that we were seeing were actually related to to not having uh, the staffing that we needed. So I think it was really getting everyone's buy-in that this was important and um, this was in order for us to make the impact, we need to, everyone to have this as a focus. And then it really came to consistency of how we looked at hiring, making sure that we're hiring with our values in mind and having a, a consistent process. We really focused on sharing candidates. So we had a, a centralized process across every team. So every manager wasn't doing it all on their own. And I think that helped us for, hey, this person's not quite right fit for this role, but I think they would be really good over here. And so that allowed us to have a better candidate experience as well as also move a little faster. Stitch Fix is someone is a company that really cares about partnership and product centric engineering. We have a product interview as part of our our flow, and this is having an engineer talk to a non technical person and collaborating on a business problem. And what I love about this is that we tend to get people who are very inquisitive, who really care passionately about solving problems, but can also talk with non-technical people about technical problems. And so I feel like we tend to have people who are stronger communicators, who um, have more of a higher EQ than most engineering teams that I've ever worked with. I can imagine that would be pretty important for Stitch Fix because I imagine as you're, you know, your CTO, you probably get pulled into a lot of meetings where the business development VP is saying, we're thinking about launching one of these five different product lines, which one of these would be easier to engineer, and you can probably help them understand what's going to be the cost of, of launching this business line from an engineering standpoint, because there's obviously tons of opportunities for Stitch Fix to expand into, and it's a, really a matter of what's the highest ROI, lowest amount of work thing that we can do right now. Yeah, absolutely. And and what's amazing is I don't have to be in every single one of those rooms because I have such a strong technical team who can be working with our strategy team or our product team on different aspects of that. In the hiring realm, when you were deciding to scale that up and you said it becomes everybody's job, does that mean like every engineer has to be doing some interviews or they have to be, you know, calling some people that they know and inviting them to come work at Stitch Fix. What does that look like when you do an all hands on deck for hiring? I mean, everything we do an all hands every other week. And we talk about all the open roles and ask people to post on their networks uh, to, to talk about hiring when they're at different conferences. But then we also have a very large number of people who go through our phone screening training to to really help scale out the number of people doing phone screens. We very much a large portion of every manager's role, but then they're leaning on the leads of their team as well as other engineers to to fill out the hiring panels. So you also mentioned this career ladder thing earlier. So there are some companies for which the career ladder is prioritized or it's 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 a big deal. So uh, I know Amazon has their career ladder and Microsoft has a career ladder and you know, it could be SDE1, SDE2, and then you become a senior engineer, then you're a et cetera. There's other companies that don't prioritize this as much. So I, I did a show with Stripe recently, and Stripe, uh, it seems like they're really figuring out, do they want to have a career ladder, or are there more advantages to just keeping things flatly defined? You're just a software engineer, or you're an engineering manager, instead of having a, or, you know, there's, there's some trade-offs yeah, to defining absolutely. that hierarchical structure. So how have you resolved that problem at Stitch Fix? 
So I kind of agree that if you can get away with not having any titles in any career ladder, you should try to maintain that as long as you can, because it is complicated as you start adding different titles and uh, it can pull people away from what's really important for their career growth. That being said, we already had a career ladder when I came and what it did was the individual contributor role tapped out at the manager role. So there were no individual contributor roles past a manager for someone to progress. And what I was seeing is that we had, you know, great architects who were swayed to be directors in roles that they weren't happy in. It wasn't using their best of their skills, but it was kind of what was seen as the right thing to do in order to to progress. And so that is a problem that I think no strong technical organization should have. So every strong technical company that I've worked with has a separate individual contributor career ladder that is on par, if not beyond the manager track, so that you are valuing your top level individual contributors as much, if not more than your your manager roles, and you're not encouraging people to move to management for the wrong reasons. Right. So historically, there was this thing, it sounds like, where compensation, the only way to get at a certain point, the only way to get past a certain compensation level was to move into management, which doesn't make sense because there are individual contributor roles where you can have just, if you're a superstar engineer slash architect, you can have just as much leverage business impact if as, yes. if not more, <laughs> yes. as a really good VP engineering. Exactly, exactly. And so that was a big problem that we needed to fix. And we had an early engineer here who was in this director role. And when I was having conversations with him, he decided that he wanted to move back into an individual contributor role. So that was definitely a, a good sign in the right direction that we had a model for this for the rest of the teams that they could look up to and, and see how they could progress. And that kind of started as the basis that we were able to use as we were flushing out the rest of the career ladder for, for, our, for our technical leaders. I always wonder how the comp structures are determined for those. Do you go out and find some compensation market research company that helps you figure out like how to do this? Citrix is a really unique compensation model, different than any other tech company that I've worked. So Stitch Fix plays the same amount for every single role. So if we have two lead engineers in San Francisco, even if they're on different teams, they will make the same amount of money. So for anyone in the same level, the same role, they have the same compensation. And this is so different than any other place that I've worked. Everywhere else you have a range and it depends on what you may have been making before or how well you negotiated when you came in. And what we wanted to do is take that out of the equation that it shouldn't, if you're doing the same role, you should get the same pay. So equal pay for equal role. And what we do is we do market-based research for every single role, not just for technical roles, but every single role within Stitch Fix. We have a a compensation team who does that, and they've got a a lot of third parties that they use to get competitive data there. But we really make sure that we've got competitive uh, competitive, uh, compensation for each role, and then we comp to the role. 
So are there bonuses or extra RSUs or anything like that? Or there's really just no variability? No variability. We expect everyone to be performing in role. And the sense is that we've got very high performers here and that we pay. This model works if everyone is performing in role and it doesn't work if you're not. And therefore, we also encourage managers and train them on how to manage performance and make sure that uh, everybody is, is operating at their best. That sounds really awesome and and idealistic in in some regard. It sounds like it avoids certain managerial conflicts. But in reality, I've seen I feel like even at like at the beginner engineer level, even at the intern level, there's a power law distribution of who actually does the most work and who puts forth the most performance. But I guess I guess you could just adjust for that in saying, okay, you accelerate through the career ladder exactly. much faster. Right, right, because then you're not pl- playing the same role, and so your role is is more equivalent to a senior uh, engineer or just a software engineer. And so uh, we do have internal, I don't love the idea of having too many titles. And so we tried to reduce the number of titles, but we have internal levels within those titles for different, for, you know, step level progression so that we can, you know, have a, a, a trajectory of, of growth for each individual. So you can, you can maybe accelerate faster through the career trajectory because of that, that egalitarian salary notion. I think it's just based on your role. We're really looking at the role that you're playing on the team and making sure that we're, you know, we have we have monthly promo meetings right now. So there's no limit in how fast we can get someone to progress. There is an expectation that's not just one project, that you have to show consistent delivery at a specific level. So it's, it's not that you'll get a promo, promo, promo every, every week. But there is this sense, though, if you are really performing at a higher level and that we compensate you based on that role that you're playing. Okay, so I know we're running out of time here. Tell me, what are the biggest frictions right now for weaving machine learning into an organization? And how are those things going to change in the coming years? So, I mean, I think that the biggest friction that we see is when we don't have equivalent staffing on both sides. So if the data science team has focused more staffing in one area than we have, or we, the engineering team has focused higher investments. And when you get into contention points where one person is depending, one team is depending on the other team or, or blocked on it, then that's where we get some problems. So we're trying to really have more upfront conversations earlier on in the year, as well as each quarter to make sure that we're not going hit, to hit these blocker points. But it's harder as a team scales to make sure that you stay in that alignment, because there's always these really interesting opportunities to go after, but we have to make sure that we stay in lockstep so that we we set up the teams for success. You mean lockstep between the data science team and the uh, specific application engineering teams? Yeah, exactly. I mean, sometimes you can run pretty independently, but there are other projects that really you need to have investments on both sides to get the full benefit from from whatever innovation is happening on either other side. And so we're we're fo- Eric and I are focusing on more of that communication to make sure that we're you know setting up our teams for success in that way and staying in sync. Kathy Polinsky, thanks for coming on Software Engineering Daily. It's been really fun talking to you. Thank you very much. Really fun talking to you as well. Wow. 